Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Hey, greetings, dear listeners. It's Jonah Goldberg, uh, host of the Remnant Podcast, which is what you're listening to. This is the um, end of week solo thingamabob. It's uh, the last Remnant of 2022, the second to last uh, piece of work product I'm going to produce in 2022. And um, as Polly Walnuts says in um, The Sopranos, we should give 2022, to paraphrase Polly Walnuts from the Sopranos, I'd like to give 2022 back to the Indians. Um, not been a great year, um, but I'm, I think the worst is behind me, knock on wood. Um, and uh, I mean, it's been a great year for the dispatch, um, ups and downs and all that kind of stuff. And it's been a pretty good year for me professionally and all that kind of stuff. But just between my mom and, and other drama, it's, uh, it's just been... Um, it's been a rough year. So uh, I'm glad and hopeful and looking forward to not just optimistic, but hopeful. Um, deep cut. Uh, looking forward to 2023 um, and putting all this behind me. Um, and so I'm going to try to avoid crushing morosity, um, at least for a little while. Uh, I think we got a little of that out of the way with talking to Kevin Williamson. Um, so uh, I don't have a huge plan about what to talk about this morning, but um, I guess we can sort of start with, uh, I don't know, um, how glad I am not to be traveling. Um, I, I really like traveling. I like, I wouldn't mind driving cross country again right now. I kind of have that itch again. Uh, my wife has to go out to the fair, Jessica, uh, has to go out to Utah soon for um a family meeting thing and but i i opted not to go just because things are so hectic and um but she may drive out there because we may be giving a car um to our daughter um if she goes back to school um and um anyway but like i watch these tales of woe from the airports and um i just get I get that kind of, um, you know, if, if, if Frem Shaman is feeling embarrassed for other people, um, and, and Schadenfreude is the feeling of, uh, taking pleasure in others' misfortune, I think I need a German word to describe feeling angry on other people's behalf. Because there's just something about air travel screw ups. Um, and the lies, the bureaucratic lies 
that are baked into it that um, just fill me with a, I have to say sometimes an unreasonable rage. Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes have to take it, I, I sometimes take it too personally. Um, but like when like United will deliberately, other airlines do this too, but I've had it most with United, will deliberately just keep saying a flight is delayed by small increments when they know the flight's not going to make it or they have a really good reason to believe the flight's not going to make it, but they don't want to tell people to make other arrangements now. Um, and then so you, you do this dance where you wait and wait and you see the arrival time ping-ponging around and then finally six hours later they cancel on you. And by then it's too late to book alternate travel or whatever. That has happened to me so many times with United. Um, and it fills me with a, 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 an unhealthy rage. Um, and then I look at these poor people with Southwest. I've never been part of the Southwest cult. I have lots of friends who love, I've always loved Southwest. I've always respected Southwest because like when other airlines um, aren't taken off, they usually do. And, um, and they're, you know, their, their on arrival time stuff always seemed to be better than other airlines and stuff like that. I never liked the forced enthusiasm of Southwest flight attendants. Nice people, great people, but it kind of always felt to me like um, TGI Fridays had taken over um, uh, an airline and the whole sort of aren't you wearing your flair vibe um, always kind of bummed me out. and. Um, and, you know, and the whole seating thing, I, I get it. If I fly Southwest, I always pay extra to do that business thing first. So at least they get to choose among the first seats. Um, but I've just never, I've never been part of this cult of it. Hey, Steve Hayes is a bit of a cultist on Southwest. He flies it a lot in Parkus. He lives, the closest airport he lives to, lives near is um, that great armpit um, BWI. I'm being a little unfair. Um, it's no longer an armpit. It's more like a knee pit now. Um, it's improved, but, uh, BWI is my least favorite airport in the area and park is just such a horror show to get to. But anyway, Steve really likes Southwest. It's always like Southwest. And I know people who are like really fanatical about it. And so I, I, I kind of worry for Southwest to get out of this bind because I can only imagine how much more betrayed the sort of Southwest uh, groupies are by how they've handled this whole thing. Um, and uh, I gotta say, I mean, there's not a huge public policy angle on this. I think there's going to be an enormous amount of, I mean, there already has been an enormous amount of um, uh, righteous sanctimony from members of Congress and whatnot, because it's just a gimme, you know, um, you get to be angry at something without having any responsibility for it. Um, and I don't, the thing that'll probably annoy me is I think the only real public policy lesson out of this is that Southwest got billions of dollars in early pandemic. I don't know if it was PPP or whatever, but you know, the airlines got big bailouts to stay afloat. And I think it was probably the right decision at the time. It, to me, this is just sort of one of these cautionary tales about how you can't just throw money at a, a business or an institution and expect it 
to respond um, in ways that you, you know, that you, in hindsight, think it should have. It just doesn't, it ne- never seems to work that way. Um, I mean, you just look at all these states right now. Um, they're sitting on all of this COVID money. And I just read this piece by Zeke Emanuel, who I have to admit, uh, kind of grates on me. He's the guy who wrote the famous, you know, his big, big uh, Obamacare, uh, you know, uh, nationalized healthcare guy. Um, but um, that's not what bothered me. His big thing was, he wrote this, I think it was from the New York Times Magazine about how, you know, really people don't really need to live past 75. Um, and, um, you know, it was all about the sort of finite resources, which I think is a real thing. I mean, I, I think the way our healthcare system is run, I learned a lot about it on the ground dealing with my mom in the last couple of years. Um, the way it's run is awful and terrible in, 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 incredibly wasteful and I get all of that but um you know I don't I don't see him volunteering to swing from the ceiling in a Logan's Run type situation uh because he's past the age of 75 now um anyway uh he wrote this piece which interesting piece I have no reason to doubt it's true it's it's veracity um in the New York Times talking about the problem with vaccination rates around the country and um uh i look i'm pro vaccine i liked i was pro vaccine when it was um something a lot of us on the right would make fun of the left about um i remember how you know people like ben dominic and other federalist types love to make fun of um the left about vaccines and of course that all got memory hold when um being pro vaccine in the era of COVID was um, problematic, but and I'm pro vaccination now. Obviously, I want due diligence, and you know they need to be go through all the trials and the efficacy stuff. But like measles vaccines and all that kind of stuff are pretty well established. I think that the um, anyway. My only point is is that Emmanuel. One of the big problems he says is. Uh, Schools around the country are way behind in their technology, their infrastructure, their investments in being able to report vaccination rates, not just for COVID, but for all of these various, um, you know, vaccines. And the amount of money that between uh, the Trump era and the Biden era that we have just helicopter, you know, dropped wet sack, like wet sacks of cement from helicopters full of cash, you know, Bernicke helicopters of cash on schools, school districts, state and county governments, um, and all of these various American rescue plan. I can't keep them all track right now. Um, and the idea that these guys can't figure out that maybe one of the things to spend the money that was supposed to be about coping and dealing with the pan- with pandemics and the problems of pandemics and the challenges of pandemics is like the infrastructure to do vaccine reporting. I mean, it's just, it it's, it's a grotesque scandal. Um, and certainly like, you know, with Southwest, you give, you know, you give these airlines money and, you know, they streamline in ways that are, I think are may or may not be. I, I, I read contradictory things that are defensible in the moment, um, but actually kind of indefensible, you know, 
in retrospect when they run into something unanticipated. And I think that like this idea that everybody knows what to do with um, a huge infusion of money is just one of these myths, right? I mean, there's this whole sort of elite liberal um, notion about American infrastructure, American public policy, American, you know, governments and all that kind of stuff that uh, they're resource starved, right? That, that, you know, everything is underfunded and if only we funded it right, all these great things would happen. And, um, and it turns out the things that are, quote unquote, underfunded tend to be public sector union pension funds, which are only underfunded in so far as they were outrageously padded in the first place. But, um, uh, you know, I molded us to remember the whole fight over shovel ready jobs. I mean, I can't tell you how many people in the Obama administration swore up and down that these these jobs were ready to go. They were shovel ready, right? You know, like literally like guys with shovels were just waiting for the sort of the, the, you know, the Allentown or Fred Flintstone whistle to blow so that they could start digging because they were ready. They were shovel ready. And of course, they later had to admit, um, I think Obama admitted it, um, but a lot of his, you know, cabinet guys ultimately admitted, yeah, the shovel ready thing really wasn't true. Um, I would, you know, I would have a lot more sympathy for, you know, some of this kind of spending if things were actually shovel ready. But like the same people who talk about shovel ready jobs um, are the people who just drench everything in bureaucratic red tape um, and regulations that make it very difficult to start any projects. I mean, I know this is an old saw of mine, but, you know, if you go back and you look, it's like the Pentagon, I'll get the numbers wrong, but the ratios will be right. You know, the Pentagon, I think it took 16 months to build the world's biggest office building. I think the Empire State Building was built in, I don't know, like 20 months. You can look it up. There's, it's a, it's a Googleable thing. Actually, I can do it right now. How long it took to build the Pentagon. Yeah, so it took 16 months to build the Pentagon. Um, it took uh, one year and 45 days to build the Empire State Building. It took, uh, let's see. Oh, they don't want you to answer this question as easily as you'd like. But the big dig in um, Boston, which I admit is a big, serious, uh, you know, construction public works project. Don't get me wrong. I, I have no problem with it, uh, you know, taking longer than building a single building or anything like that. But work began in 1982 and was completed in 2007. Um, and you get the point. It's like the people who, it's like, I remember I did a whole, I think I did a chapter in my underrated book, uh, Tyranny of Clichés, um, about this. I know I wrote a column about it. Uh, Rachel Maddow um, did a, used to do these uh, commercials for MSNBC in the Obama years about how government can do great and wonderful things. It is amazing if you look back at how many of those sort of lean in. I can't remember what the theme, the, 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 the franchise of these ads was. You know, now they do these, 
this is who we are things. But like uh, in the Obama years, when, you know, when um, New Deal envy was was raging hot, they would just do these ads in favor of government. It was just kind of wild. Um, this was the time when, um, what's her name, did the whole um, ad, you know, these, this commercial where she explains that um, we have to get rid of the notion of private ownership of children, like we should have communal ownership of children. Um, and anyway, Rachel Maddow did this thing about the Hoover, where she's standing in front of the Hoover Dam and is talking about how awesome the Hoover Dam is and how great government was for doing big things like this. And we can do big things and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, the Hoover Dam, which if you've never been, you really should go. It's pretty wild, um, was built in five years. And like, I think that was very fast given how impressive that thing is um, and what they had to do. But I'll tell you right now, if you tried to build the equivalent of the Hoover Dam, which is, I have to say, also an absolutely grotesque crime against nature. Um, I'm a big, I'll get to that in a second, I guess. But uh, you would have Rachel Maddow having on guests on her show from Greenpeace and the Sierra Club and and climate action and this and that and the other thing talking about how... um, this was an assault on nature and outrageous. You'd have the same people who oppose the Keystone Pipeline, you know, getting their dresses over their heads about how um, we can't do this. Um, and that's the, I mean, if, if, if you're upset about the inability of government to actually do big things rather than just spend big monk, amounts of money, the people who are talking about shovel-ready jobs um, are on the same team as the people who are, you know, preventing the shovel-ready jobs from being shovel-ready. Um, and so, you know, you had the Obama administration change to, what was it, um, you know, when they had to move off of uh, creating all these jobs, because they didn't, uh, they then started talking about, it was always one of my favorite lines from the Obama years was, you know, they would talk about uh, how many jobs they saved or created, which is like this, perfectly non-falsifiable thing. And I used to talk about it, you know, speeches all the time. It's like, you know, this morning I, I, I saved or did 500 push-ups. Anyway, you get, you get this sort of uh, love of go- ambitious government in um, the abstract. And then you have the same people who love ambitious government in the abstract, uh, making it very difficult to fulfill those ambitions in a reasonable, cost-effective, and timely manner because, you know, everyone's got to, every, every, every uh, um, constituency needs to collect rents off of these things. Oh, that reminds me, a while ago, uh, who was I? Oh, one of the criticisms Scott Lincecum and I got on the um, last time he was on was uh, we, he used in particular the phrase rents um, promiscuously and a lot of people, and someone said, you know, that, that's not a term normal people understand, um, um, which is fair enough. I don't know why I'm deviating into this um, um, minutia at this point, but it just came into my head. Um, <laughs> it's like, while I'm talking, I, I wrote rent's definition into Google, thinking that like it would give me the sort of textbook economic definition of rents. Um, and instead (laughs) the first result is rents informal, a person's parents 
are your rents in town? No wonder they got into trouble for, okay, so they fixed this. You know, the other day, there was this thing where if you typed Jew into Google, the first thing you got back was the old um, anti-Semitic verb use of it, which is like that, to um, obnoxiously haggle with somebody over money, um, which, you know, it's still in use. I, I run across it every now and then. I actually overheard it the other day from somebody. Um, I don't want to get more detail than that, but it's amazing to me how it lives on. My dad's, my dad used to tell me his first and only experience, I shouldn't say only, but his first experience with anti-Semitism in college was one of his closest friends. Um, they were arguing about like paying for gas for a trip or something like that. And, you know, his friend says, I can't believe you're going to Jew me on this. And my dad was like, I can't believe you just said that to me. And um, so for those of you who don't know, it is, uh, it is offensive to Jews to say that the word Jew means to haggle in a penny-pinching and uh, money-grubbing manner. Um, it's got a long history, in, particularly in German. Um, Marx has all sorts of lexicographical um, leisure domain about the use of the word Jew and, and haggling and all of these kinds of things. But anyway, how to get, oh, that, uh, rents. Okay, well, here's the um, really too complicated from the OECD glossary of statistical terms. In modern economics, rent refers to the earnings of factors of production, land, labor, capital, which are fixed in supply. Thus, raising the price of such factors will not cause an increase in availability, but will increase the return to the factor. I don't think that's the best way to explain it. Basically, rent is in, in, in more popular uh, vernacular is just simply a rent is like um, unearned revenue, right? Rather than profit per se, because in profit, the inputs are uh, measured against, you know, the cost of production and opportunity costs and all this kind of stuff. While rents are something, you get a slice whether or not um, profit enters into the equation. And so you, you know, in the, it wouldn't surprise me if the sort of OE, the um, old English uh, derivation of this comes from like various aristocrats who were entitled to X amount of farthings from, you know, their serfs every year, regardless of whether the serfs made a profit or may, had, an, had a good crop or a bad crop, right? Those are kind of rents. Like it's, it's income that you make from economic or government activity that you've, you've extracted for, for um, unearned or unjustified reasons. So it's not profit, right? And so you have, you know, rent seeking is huge in public choice theory and in economics um, and about public policy because you have all sorts of people who want, you know, to collect revenue, collect their taste, as the mob might say, um, without actually doing anything for it. And um, rent seeking behavior is all over the place in Washington. Speaking of like aristocrats taking money and, you know, fixed prices and all these kinds of things, the economist has a really interesting piece about how today's inflation was foreshadowed in the um, 
inflation of the 1500s. And um, I knew about some of this stuff because I read up about the pandemic and, you know, the Black Death and all this kind of stuff. And the Black Death comes earlier, right? But the consequences for Europe in terms of uh, leading to the freeing of serfs, uh, the rise of all sorts of institutions. I wrote a column about this at the beginning of COVID. It's really interesting how much Europe was transformed economically, socially, and everything by um, the Black Death. You know, we're like, I don't know, it was a third of Europeans uh, died and died badly. Um, and one of the reasons why surf, serfdom started to unravel is that with the loss, with, with such a depletion in the labor force, um, you could actually start um, negotiating better prices for your labor um, because labor was so scarce. And anyway, the, the, the economist piece is all about how one of the things that came from the Black Death was um, or the plague or, um, was r- runaway inflation. For the, in the 1500s. And there was basically no living memory of inflation. And um, this, is, uh, this is from the piece. So the piece begins with this story, you know, for all of my, um, you know, uh, fetishists of, of, of pre-modern Europe, uh, all my fetishizer friends, all my friends who fetishize pre-modern Europe as somehow this great place um, full of virtue and, 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 the highest good. The piece begins with the story about how there was a a funeral around the time of Henry, midway through Henry VIII's reign, where everyone was super drunk, and um, very quickly a, a straight up like seventy person orgy broke out, um, where naughty things were happening. So anyway, uh, and th- this was this is sort of a way to sort of tease the fact that. There was all sorts of chaotic behavior um, spreading across Europe. You know, this is the time when the rise of the witch hunts, which um, were more of a Protestant thing than a, a Catholic thing, but in, in the Protestant revolution. And I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on, right? There's a lot of tumult. And anyway, the economist writes, the root of the chaos was a wholly unexpected and wholly unfamiliar surge in inflation. Now, I think this might be overstating the case. I think there were other things going on, but inflation screws up people. Uh, for at least the 300 years leading up to the 1500s, Western Europe made modern-day Japan look like Zimbabwe. In England, in 1500, the price of a standard basket of goods facing consumers, largely food, but including other things such as clothing and light, was no higher than it had been in 1275, uh, suggests the work by Gregory Clark, a historian and researcher at the Bank of England. So that's amazing, right? That, that, talk about wage and price controls. You had rules about what things should cost that were set by guilds, set by monarchs, set by tradition. And, um, you know, I write about this quite a bit in Suicide West. Uh, this, this sort of mindset that things should never change, that the economy should be a steady state thing. Um, was grounded in this kind of behavior, right? And this is why innovation um, in comparative advantage and, you know, uh, and marketing, you know, all of these things um, were seen as evil and often, you know, sinisterly Jewish. 
um, getting back to the Jew thing, um, there was, um, uh, Jerry Muller writes about, um, in his just fantastic book, The Mind and the Market, this guy, uh, Eustace, uh, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, Eustace uh, Moser, um, who I kind of went down a deep rabbit hole when I was working on the book. And Moser was uh, sort of a lawyer, um, intellectual guy, uh, local civil servant kind of thing. I can't remember what all his job titles were. Um, in medieval Germany, and I can't remember which, you know, little German princely state. And what was sort of fascinating to me was how much of what he was talking about was essentially sort of textbook Marxism, or at least textbook, you know, Frankfurt School Marxism, that he hated these peddlers and, uh, which often meant Jews, uh, these traveling salesmen who would come around and sell their wares. And he thought it was destabilizing to the established order um, to tell peasants that there were goods and services that were superior to the ones that they relied on. Um, it was destabilizing to the guilds who didn't want to change their product line because they'd been making pots and pans the same way for centuries. And why should we change and all that kind of stuff? This is ordained by God. And um, as, as, as Jerry Muller points out, you know, it's like when you actually look at the stuff that this guy Moser was, um, thinking was destabilizing to the social order, you know, look at the stuff that these traveling salesmen were selling. It was things like better sewing needles or thimbles to protect your thumb while sewing and, um, you know, better pots and pans and tea kettles and these kinds of things. And these these extravagances, which made the guilds seem uh, uh, inferior and made the established order seem, uh, you know, overly burdensome, uh, were just the slightest improvements in people's lives. Anyway, uh, start with the digression. The Economist goes on and says, all this changed after 1500. Sustained price inflation, once unthinkable, became unstoppable. Within 50 years, average prices across England had doubled. Before long, Italian prices were rising by, a by 5% a year. Research by Paul Schmelzing of Boston University or Boston College suggests in France and Holland, inflation hit 4% by the end of the century. In Russia, the inflationary period, the inflationary trend picked up from the 1530s. The global rate of inflation peaked in the 1590s at close to 3% a year. Um, if 3% does not sound too painful, bear in mind that growth in nominal incomes in, pre in the pre-capitalist world were basically zero. Almost any level of inflation made people poor, right? So like people's incomes, just like the prices of things, were set down in paper um, by their forebears. And who were they to question that just because prices went up, a serf should get five more shillings for plowing a field for the week and that kind of thing. Anyway, the piece goes on just to show about how all this chaos ensued. And, you know, this has been a bit of a theme of mine on here about how inflation makes people crazy um, because it, uh, it really makes the world feel like things are out of control. And I just think it's really interesting that... Um, um, that was true, maybe even arguably more true um, in pre-capitalist Europe um, than in our 
pre the pre capitalist West than in the post capitalist West, um, and you can kind of understand why that might be the case when you start thinking about it. Um, is also like I, I got into this in the Wednesday G file. I'm not going to dwell on it, but you know, Rusty Reno, um, who I, I remain um, um, not a fan of, even though look, I think he's written some interesting and smart things and all that kind of stuff. But I think his his grasp on capitalism and markets is uh, is thumbless, um, and I think that he, uh, um, I think he ultimately he doesn't actually care about public policy. He cares about the sort of poetics of um, a sort of religious Catholic integralist order and all that kind of stuff, and he cares about being popular with a bunch of ultra traditional young Catholic kids who he thinks represent um, an idea whose time has come, when in fact they represent. Um, a bunch of, you know, uh, ultra traditional Catholic kids with too much time on their hands. But anyway, he has this piece where he talks about, and Dave Bonson did a good job criticizing it and taking it apart. But he does this, he recently wrote this piece, which I, I talk about a very little bit um, in the Wednesday G file, about uh, how all capitalism is, capitalism is, a, is an ideology that seeks to put monetary value on everything. Um, or words to that effect. And I guess that's just, that's, I don't think that's true, but even if it were true, that is not an argument for getting rid of capitalism. That is an argument for understanding where capitalism is no longer um, the primary uh, means of, of organizing uh, life. And, um, you know, I don't think he read it, but he, he crapped all over my book. And I make this book, I make this point at length in the book about how, you, you know, this is, this is, uh, there are all sorts of institutions that cannot be made into market institutions. And the most important of which is family. You've all heard me say a million times on here about how, um, in my family, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm essentially a Marxist, um, because I, in your family, and, and most of you probably are as well, because in your family, you know, with your kids, it really is um, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. You do what you need to do regardless of the economic costs for your loved ones. You don't put, well, you know, you know, Timmy's been good um, and he hasn't cost us a lot in, in medical bills. So, yeah, he can get this procedure. But, you know, Susie, we already paid for the orthodonture and we paid for that ruptured appendix. So, you know, we're just not going to like lay out any more money for this broken leg, right? That's just not how anybody in a family thinks about their family. That's not how you think about your friends. This is one of the oldest points I've been making on this podcast is about this, the difference between what the Germans call the Gemeinschaft and the Gesellschaft. And the gazelle shaft is the place of markets and contracts and legal orders and how, how people interact with strangers. And the Gemeinschaft is the, the stuff about how you deal with family and friends and within the little platoons of life where the, the metrics aren't about profit because you don't talk about profit and, and, and trade in the same way with friends and family that you do with strangers. And, uh, you know, in the family, which is essential to capitalism, because it is the building block, it is the institution that forms, that is at the forefront of forming character, 
and forming citizens um, and de-barbarianifying children into productive members of society. Um, that and it teaches it's families are supposed to teach kids how to delay gratification and be honest and all of these things that capitalism depends upon. Um, but you cannot impose the rules of capitalism on the family without destroying the family. And you cannot impose the rules of the family on the market without destroying the market. And I, I, if there's a central thing that explains my worldview, I think this is probably it. It's that you, that, that, that you can't, you know, the government can't love you. God, how many times have I written about that? You know, that you cannot have the extended order, the extended society, the, the world outside of your little platoons, your microcosm of friends and family, of, of even workplace colleagues, right? You know, the people, if you live in Cleveland, um, you cannot have uh, the people, the random people you've never met and don't know the names of in Minnesota you can't treat them like they're part of your family. You can't. Nationalism tries to fake this and claim that you can, but you can't. This was the, a huge part of the, you know, what I wrote about in liberal fascism was that, you know, the whole, um, you know, pitch about that the, the, the fundamental flaw of communism was that it assumed that workers around the world, right, workers of the world unite, could... Um, feel as much kindredness and kinship and solidarity with, you know, if you were on the, the assembly line in Detroit, you know, making, uh, I don't know, carburetors, and your feeling of solidarity and, and fraternity with someone doing the same thing in Dresden, should trump nationalistic cultural considerations. It just would not sell. Um, and that's where you get national socialism from, because even though nationalism and fascism and these things cannot actually make you treat people a thousand miles away who you don't know, like your family, um, it's a more scalable way of appealing to the sort of sweet tooths um, of our nature about, you know, it's our tribe, right? And so like a, a factory worker in Detroit doesn't have any sort of real feelings for a factory worker in Dresden, but he might have real feelings of, of kinship or, you know, or, or at least patriotic, you know, brotherhood or whatever you want to call it. I'm, words they know come easy today for the line supervisor or even the owner of the factory, right? I mean, maybe they both come from the same neighborhood. They have the same religion. They speak the same language. They go to the same sporting events. They're both Americans, right? There's, and so the, the appeal of, of nationalism and fascism is that it's, it's greater, it's more appealing than um, the cold materialism of, of Marxist communism, but it still fails when you try to apply it in the economic realm. Because, right, that's what, I mean, the original understanding of what totalitarianism means um, isn't this Orwellian thing. It's, it comes from Mussolini. Mussolini coins the phrase, and it's, you know, it means holistic. It means everything, um, we're all in it together. Everything within the state, nothing outside of the state. We are all one unit, right? We're all part of the great big Italian team. 
know, we're not going to leave any Italian children behind. It was that kind of thing. And of course, that mindset leads to the kind of totalitarianism that uh, we're more familiar with, or it can lead to it. Um, I think that kind of, let's call it totalism, um, can work for small groups for small periods of time in ways that are actually really uplifting, right? You know, when the little girl falls down the well, everybody's in it together. You know, um, you know, everyone drops what they're doing. The guy at the general store says, take whatever you need. Let's get this done. Um, then that's why, you know, the, that's why the moral equivalent of war thing is so attractive to so many intellectuals and activists and, and whatnot is because that's where fascism comes from. It was originally called the socialism of the trenches. It was this idea that this bond that we had in war, we can, make, we can sustain it and maintain it on the domestic front. That's another way, basically, of saying you can treat, treat the world of the domestic front like a giant family. And you can't. You can't, at least not for long. During a crisis, yeah, where the normal rules are suspended, all sorts of things happen. You look at Ukraine right now. All sorts of those kinds of things are happening. You look, I just listened to this piece in, on NPR about how in Buffalo, everyone is sort of dropping what they're doing and helping each other dig out and all that kind of stuff. During a crisis, the gazelle shafts can get very gamine shafty. Um, but that cannot be sustained because you cannot run an efficient market economy where you treat everybody like a friend. Like if you own a bar and your best friend from high school comes in and you haven't seen him in a while, you can give him a free beer. You can give him 10 free beers. You can't give every stranger who comes in the same deal that you give to your best friend in the world, right? Like you, there's just, it just doesn't work that way. And so much of whatever label or ism you want to call it, um, it assumes that somehow you can use the rules and the sentiments of the Gemeinschaft shaft to find the gazelle shaft, right? That we can make, remember Obama talking about paying taxes is just neighborly. Um, that you can, you know, uh, Biden cost, talks constantly about everything that we can do if we're unified. Well, you know, in a marketplace, you know, national unity is not particularly useful, right? Because you're trying to compete against other Americans to put, bring better products to the market, market at a cheaper price or at higher quality or, um, or, or more quickly or whatever. And so capitalism is, or, and I prefer the mar you know, market-based economics, but market-based economics is great for economics. But there are places where it should not go. Um, you know, it should not go into, um, you know, in, it should not go into religion. I think it goes into religion a lot. There are a lot of people out there who are in religion for the money. Um, but the people in the pews, you know, barring the prosperity gospel types, they're not in the pews for the money. They're there for something else. And um, I think every sort of decent, you know, pastor, rabbi and whatnot understands that they have obligations that cannot be simply captured by market principles, right? They're there to save souls and to help people and to repair the world and all that kind of stuff. And um, they can't just be profit maximizers. And I don't know anybody who's in favor of market economics who thinks otherwise. Similarly, in your family, you can't be purely about profit maximization. Um, all sorts of institutions even profit-making institutions internally have sub, uh, excuse me, some important sort of sub subordinate components that aren't purely about 
profit maximization. We make all sorts of decisions at the dispatch that aren't purely about profit maximization. They, we, we would argue that in the long run, they'll probably be better for us as a business proposition because quality is important and maintaining the sort of the integrity of the brand and the integrity of our relationship with our, our, our readers and our listeners um, is important. But on a day-to-day basis, we, all the time we talk about doing things um, because it's the right thing to do rather than, you know, this is how we squeeze out money. We, there are all sorts of things we could have done from the beginning to make more money. And we were just honest with our investors that we weren't going to do that stuff. Um, so like even in the market, um, there are all sorts of things that um, don't necessarily have to be driven by um, relentless efficiency, profit maximization, um, the quantify, quantifying everything in terms of, of, of money. Um, and so the, the claim that it's otherwise, that capitalism does that, again, even if it were true about capitalism, and this is a point, you know, Schumpeter makes this point, lots of people made this point, is that there's nothing internal to capitalism. There's nothing internal to the efficiencies of the market-based system that um, prevents it from uh, invading spheres of life that shouldn't be invaded by market principles. The nice thing about liberal democratic capitalism is the liberal and the democratic part um, create high walls that separate, you know, certain spheres of life from uh, purely market-based principles. You know, this, and this this idea that like, you know, I get the, it's not just Reno, I see this all over the place. This idea that American um, politics is defined by, you know, sort of rapacious capitalists versus I don't know what. I mean, like most of the anti-capitalists until about 10 minutes ago were on the left. Um, and lots of the stuff that the left wants has nothing to do with, with profit maximization or the market. I mean, a lot of the stuff that they, you know, I mean, like, uh, like yes, you can make and some people have made, but it, 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 it clangs off the ear arguments for abortion as an economic thing. Um, but that's not really the fundamental argument about um, being, you know, uh, in favor of abortion rights. And it's not the fundamental, and it's certainly not the fundamental thing about um, being pro-life. Uh, you know, these, these, these questions get at stuff that's much deeper, that's outside of market concerns. Um, you make instrumentalist and, you know, pretextual arguments about how it affects the market or how it affects, you know, economic inequality and all these kinds of things. But at its core, that's, those aren't the issues. Um, and we put it this way, if, um, if you could compensate every poor woman who declined to have an abortion um, uh, with the money that they would lose as a, um, um, that they would allegedly lose um, by, the, by taking on this extra burden, I don't think all of the pro-abortion rights people would say, okay, then we can be a pro-life country, right? It's just not primarily their argument. It's, it's, it's part of their portfolio of argument. And, you know, I mean, this country has put, I don't know, tens of millions of, of acres, hundreds of millions of acres of, of land and sea beyond the reach of the market. Um, you can make an argument it should do more of that or it should do less of that, but like it's, it's not a market thing. Anyway, um, I, I just felt like I needed to get that off of my chest. 
So I'm thinking about doing this G file today. Only you will know if I end up doing it. Um, well, I guess I'll know too. But uh, you know, one of my big critiques of, I mean, you've heard me talk about this a bunch of times, but one of my big critiques of sort of environmental activism and environmental journalism in America is that it's really just climate change journalism. Very difficult to, it, it, it's very difficult to find a story about um, environmental problems or um, environmental progress that isn't either framed in the context of climate change or doesn't digress for several paragraphs or minutes into, you know, climate change. And, um, you know, there are just some environmental stories that aren't both good and bad, that aren't about climate change. And um, my friend Steve Hayward used to make the point that, you know, that the first big UN environmental summit thing was what, in like 92 or something like that, 91, early 90s. And it actually had two goals. And one was about biodiversity. And the other one was about climate change. Since then, biodiversity comes up. Apparently, the UN just made a major announcement on it. I mean, if you haven't heard that, I rest my case. Um, but biodiversity, no one would think, that, no one would claim that biodiversity is a co-equal concern um, among activists and foundations and journalists and politicians to climate change. And, you know, when I make this point, a lot of climate change people say, yeah, but we're losing uh, biodiversity because of climate change. At the margins, or in certain cases, that might be true. But for the most part, it's not true. I mean, like, the biodiversity we're losing in Latin America is, um, uh, and, you know, particularly the Amazon, that's not caused by climate change. That's caused by bulldozers. Um, that's caused by, you know, policies about, you know, converting or letting people convert, uh, rainforest into farmland. And I, I don't like it. Right. I mean, uh, a big pro yeah, there's this problem with ocean acidification due to, to CO2 stuff. Although apparently there's been some progress, at least in the Great Barrier Reef. But the point is, yeah, there are problems related to climate change with the oceans, but the bigger problems with the oceans is overfishing and pollution. Um, and I really, I really care about that stuff. I mean, I'm not, a, as you know, from my work product, I'm not obsessed with it and I don't write about it all the time. Um, but like, I, I think that stuff is a, a serious and real concern and one can be more skeptical about the urgency of the crisis of climate change without being anti-environment, right? Because there's all sorts of stuff I would love to see done about plastic pollution in oceans and about overfishing and about, you know, rainforests and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think I made this point on here before. Al Gore used to love to talk about the vanishing snows, uh, the vanishing snow on Kilimanjaro, right? You know, um, and, and blame it on climate change. It wasn't because of climate change. It was because of deforestation on the mountain. The forests had, you know, trapped all sorts of, and attracted all sorts of vapor or fog or, you know, whatever. And then when it migrated up altitude, it would convert into snow. When you get rid of the forests on the mountain, you get rid of the snow on the mountain. Um, and fixing climate change will not fix deforestation by itself, right? Um, but anyway, I, 
back in the days when the biodiversity thing was a bigger issue, I remember reading stuff about how certain environmentalists thought that, you know, they're against fossil fuels for all the obvious reasons. Um, and it's worth pointing out that opposition to fossil fuels by environmentalists predates concerns about climate change. Um, you know, the first big uh, anti-fossil fuels moment was, I think, in, what, 68 with the Santa Barbara oil spill? And climate change was not really on the radar back then. Um, but there's this whole strain of thought that thinks that fossil fuels is really sort of the, the blood of capitalism. And, you know, that's the way you undermine capitalism and get us more to a, what they used to call, I guess they still call a steady state economy. Um, anyway, the, the interesting thing to me is like, there used to be a bunch of people, I remember Ron Bailey writing about it, um, who were like saying the quiet part out loud about how it would be terrible if humanity got cheap, abundant, clean energy, because then there would be no stopping, you know, the rapacious capitalists from paving the planet and doing all sorts of things, right? And at least high energy costs prevent um, all sorts of economic development. Um, and for a certain breed, and by no means all environmentalists or all people concerned with climate change or any of that stuff, but for a certain strain of passionate environmentalists, um, the real problem was development itself, right? And that's why you have all of these used to be a lot on the left. You see a different strain of it on the right, but on the left, there are, you know, all these things about like sort of wishing we could be in a, what they would call, you know, a, a steady state economy, you know, like, you know, some indigenous peoples or noble savage types who just lived off the land and their reach didn't exceed their grasp. And yeah, and everything was sort of the circle of life and let's hold up a lion cub and sing Kubaya. And I've, I haven't seen uh, opposition. I mean, that's one of the good things about climate change is that it's forced a bunch of people to let go of some of those stupid ideas. Um, because if you actually believe, and a lot of people sincerely believe that climate change is this huge crisis, they understand they actually need non-carbon emitting, non-greenhouse gas emitting, uh, energy sources to do anything about climate change because you just can't tell people not to use energy, right? You just, it's just a non-starter. And so, you know, there's been real movement on, um, on support for nuclear. And I mean, I, I much prefer nuclear to windmills and solar panels. I think at some point we're going to get a real accounting about the carbon footprint of those things. Um, um, and it's going to be much less than has been claimed because of the, the incredibly carbon intensive inputs that go into batteries and all the rest. But, um, but like this fusion stuff is just such an unbelievable game changer if we can pull it off, right? You should check out Jim Pethokoukis's Substack. Uh, it's called Faster Please, um, which deals with, um, the nitty gritty uh, as dealt with a couple times now on the nitty gritty about where we are with fusion. And I'm not going to, in the few minutes I have left, get deep in the weeds on that, but you know, and you probably already know because you were a, a smart and well-informed audience that the great thing about fusion is first of all, it has the potential of releasing as much or more energy than 
than fission, which is what we use n- normal nuclear, um, which is what we get nuclear power from now. But, you know, fission, as the name suggests, means tearing stuff apart. And the problem with tearing stuff, tearing atomic, you know, stuff apart is that it creates a mess. And the mess is called nuclear waste and it's bad, right? Um, and it's scary. It's not as bad or as scary as some people make it out to be, but it's bad and it's scary. And it's difficult. And politically, it's very difficult to deal with. Um, the great thing about fusion is that it's putting stuff together and it has no scary byproducts, right? I think it's just like water, essentially. And, um, or hydrogen or whatever. Um, and, uh, and if, so if we could figure out how to produce really bountiful amounts of energy with fusion, then I, you know, among the first and probably not in the first in line, because it's a very popular thing, but like, no, let's get rid of coal. Let's get rid of oil. Let's get rid of natural gas. I mean, on a reasonable timetable as we implement the infrastructure, but like fusion is a scalable thing. Again, if it works, right, I'm assuming that it works. Um, you know, they did have this big breakthrough this year, but like, I'm assuming it works at scale and that we can figure out all the things we need to figure out. Um, fusion would be a legitimate desirable alternative to oil and gas production. And yes, it would put people out of work um, in the short term, right? And like creative destruction and technological innovation, that happens and I'm okay with it. And, um, and you know, this is an important point to just acknowledge because even though I'll be dead by the time this becomes, um, you know, mass scale commercial via, you know, viable, but, you know, People should acknowledge that there are winners and losers with this kind of thing. But the number of winners just wildly exceeds the number of losers if we could actually achieve this. I mean, it would just be just astonishing what would happen, um, how transformative it would be. Anyway, so the thing I've been wanting to write about, I just haven't been able to put the brain cells together and do the reading I want to do on it, is like when this becomes more real than it is now, you're going to start hearing people from the sort of anti-growth, limits of growth, uh, Club of Rome type people. Um, Those are all deep cuts for people um, who don't follow this stuff closely. You know, sort of the the neo-Malthusians will say, whoa, 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 whoa. Cheap, inexhaustible energy is actually a bad thing. And one of the things I think it's worth as a society thinking about now is what are some of the really great environmental things, right? Um, stuff having to do with making of restoring nature that we could do if energy was not a problem, right? There was literally no limit to energy. Um, you know, one of the things I would love to do is that's how I started thinking about this. We were talking about the Hoover Dam. Um, I want to get rid of all of those dams. Um, it is almost impossible for salmon to get all the way up through those dams. And, um, you know, I did this, uh, rafting trip a couple of years ago, um, in Idaho and like the, you know, the people who were running it were, you know, pretty hardcore crazies. Um, you know, on our last day, they read us this poem about blowing up, um, was it the Glen Canyon Dam? It's like some poem about 10,000 pounds of TNT, boys. And I was just horrified by it, right? Because it was basically a poem about eco-terrorism. 
But um, uh, but those dams are terrible, right? They're terrible for the environment. They're terrible for um, biodiversity. Uh, some of these rivers out west used to be full of sturgeon. Sturgeon can't live, um, can't thrive in um, rivers that are dammed up and down um, the way. So you get rid of all those. You could bring back, you know, Pacific salmon into Washington State and Oregon and Idaho and all these places in huge, huge numbers. Um, you could put a drone, you know, you could assign a single drone to monitor um, every single elephant left in Africa so that you could catch poachers better. I wouldn't have any problem if they were armed drones. I think I have no problem with um, lethal force to stop poaching of elephants. Um, you could create drone robots, right? That just go through um, the oceans cleaning up plastic. Uh, if, you know, one of the biggest things that holds us up on, on desalinization is it's just so energy intensive. But if energy weren't a problem, all of a sudden you could have virtually limitless fresh water because there's a lot of water in the ocean. And if we could cheaply, affordably desalinize water, um, the amount of food production that we could do, um, the amount of restoration to, you know, um, drought stricken, stricken parts of California would just be phenomenal. Um, you know, all sorts of things you could do about getting rid of, you know, fertilizer, which cause, causes getting rid of the current kinds of fertilizer that we have which causes um, these giant, you know, uh, dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and elsewhere. Um, anyway, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting exercise to think about what we could do to, you know, you want your high-speed rail stuff? Well, I mean, it's a lot easier when, when, you know, when power is just simply not an issue. Um, the things we could do to actually fix environmental problems um, it's, it's worth thinking about um, because, first of all, it's just worth thinking about how to fix environmental problems. But second of all, it's worth coming up with some of these policy solutions to sell people on why fusion is going to be so awesome. And personally, I think, you know, low electricity bills and the rest will convince a lot of people. But much like the shovel-ready jobs crowd, um, there are people at sort of political choke points um, in our government and in our decision-making process as a society who have the ability to thwart good ideas for a long time. And, um, and I'm a big, you know, like I remember, I, I, I think I originally got this from my dad. Um, I remember as a little kid being really worried about, because we were just, you know, in the 70s, man, we were just drenched in, phobia and fear-mongering about um, pollution and overpopulation and all of these kinds of things. And some of that led to good things. America's a lot cleaner than it was when I was a kid. Um, you know, that crying fake Indian campaign and all of that, you can make fun of it, but like, this is another place where I think sort of market um, and wild individual liberty um, uh, gave way to uh, good state public policy, you know, where, where, where you know, where they basically 
ordered people to to litter less, and I think it's a better country for it. Um, you know, there's still places that are filthy and all that kind of stuff, but like, it's nothing compared to what it was like in the seventies. Anyway, um, but like, I remember saying to my dad something about, you know, water pollution or something, or ocean pollution or something. I mean, maybe it was about the Hudson River or something. I can't remember because I was a little kid. And my dad, you know, he was like, look, there's going to come a time and I won't be around, but like, there's going to come a time when we're going to basically be able to just basically give, you know, a lake a pill and it will fix it. And he was dumbing down a more complicated point for a little kid. But I've always thought that we spend, you know, this is why I, getting back to the sort of anti-oil stuff, I've always been suspicious of people who think that because the market or capitalism or whatever has led to what, you know, the, the favorite term, uh, the favorite economic term for every green activist is externality, right? These externalities that are, are, end up being public expenses because corporations don't deal with them. Air pollution is a classic example, right? Um, the factories don't pay anything, didn't pay anything um, to prevent air pollution, but then all of a sudden the costs of air pollution are borne by taxpayers generally. I'm not saying it's a bad point, um, but uh, they always seem to think that the problem with external the problem with the externalities, environmental externalities of 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 industry and capitalism. Um, I shouldn't say they always because it's not all of them and that's not all of the time. But there are people who think that the remedy for these problems is simply to throw a wet blanket on economic activity rather than to solve the problem. Um, and it's not, you know, I mean, the best analogy of it, I think, is probably, and I know I bring this up a lot, but um, I think it's an important point, is um, we spend, I keep looking up the number because it's so crazy, um, that I think I must be getting it wrong, but we spend something like $300 billion, $350 billion a year on Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's-like ailments because we're basically just treating very old people who need constant care and supervision. Um, and um, it's incredibly labor-intensive. The pills are very expensive. The medications are very expensive. And... Um, and it's just a huge drain on resources. And I'm, this is not, I'm not going Canada euthanasia on you here. I'm just making the point that it's, it's a huge line item. And, um, and I'm all in favor of, you know, more nurses and more elderly care facilities and all of those kinds of things. I mean, those are perfectly legitimate arguments. But you know what I'm really in favor of is curing it, right? Or just simply curing it. Because if you cure it, it's not a line item anymore. It's gone. And people actually have, and not just the people themselves, but their whole families have much richer, better quality of life because you cured it, right? I mean, people will still die of something else. People will still have, there will still be suffering and all of that, but at least this one will be gone. And um, that's sort of why I am still very sympathetic to geoengineering. You know, the idea of doing something you know, there's all sorts of very serious arguments about how to do it. You, know, you can 
decrease the albedo effect by creating more clouds that will reflect more light back up into the into space. You know, there are all sorts of experiments that we could do. You know, it doesn't mean we're going to turn into Snowpiercer. Um, uh, and you would want to study the crap out of it. But if you look at the timeline for how the current policies, you know, the Kyoto protocols or whatever the latest one is, um, how long it will take to have any real effect on the pace and scope of climate change. It's like a century out, right? Um, and if that's your timeline to have a little bit of progress at the end of the 21st century, then spending 20 years with a serious basic research, you know, uh, effort into figuring out how to do a cure right? That doesn't involve setting off a volcano and throwing us into sort of de facto uh, natural nuclear winter for a couple of years. Um, but figuring out, you know, sort of discrete ways to uh, bend the curve faster and better than the current proposed policies just makes total sense to me. And I understand, you know, the precautionary principle and you know, Frankenstein's monster, and, you know, a thousand different sci-fi movies where things go wrong. Yeah, things can go wrong. Screws fall. It's an imperfect world. But um, I just think that fixing a problem is better than sort of nurturing a problem. Um, and it's more cost effective. Uh, I, I think I brought this up before too, but I remember reading, I've been looking for it for years. I once asked readers to find it for me. No one could. Um, I remember reading this uh, great, I used to love reading sci-fi short stories. And um, there was one where humans were leaving Earth on a exploratory mission to, I guess, Alpha Centauri. I guess that's the closest, you know, star system. And they knew that it was going to take like 250 years because they don't have faster than light travel. And so they made all these uh, preparations to, you know, suspended animation sleep or to have kids on the ship, you know, because it would be like three generations four generations from now before they reach their destination. And they're like, you know, a couple months, again, I haven't read this in 35 years, but uh, they're like, you know, five months into their trip. They're just sort of out on the outer edges of the solar system or whatever. And they see a ship. And the ship is there for a second. They try to talk to it. And then it's not an, it's not an Earth ship. Um, and then it disappears in, with faster than light travel. And the captain says, all right, everybody, we're heading back to Earth. And, um, and they're like, why? What are you talking about? Why are we abandoning the mission just because we saw the ship? You know, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, look, it's going to take us three centuries to get to this other planet. Um, it, now that we know that faster than light travel is doable, by the time we finished our mission, people from Earth would probably already have cities at our destination, let's go back. Let's figure out how to do this. And my hunch is it's going to take less than 350 years to figure out how to do it. Right. And that, I always think about that in the climate context, the climate change stuff is, you know, sometimes I'm a Copenhagen, Copenhagen consensus kind of guy, you know, sometimes if you can't solve the problem now, you do a little bit, you, you do stuff around the edges to, 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 to mitigate the problem now. And then you deal with the problems that you can fix with an eye towards fixing this unfixable problem when you can fix it. 
And, uh, you know, there are all sorts of analogs to this in personal finance. You know, there are all sorts of analogs in this to your personal health. Um, and I don't see why sort of environmental policy should be any different. Um, but the people who want to, you know, go back to the pre, you know, sort of the pre-1500s European model of economics where everything's sort of frozen in place, um, they're going to lose that argument because that's not what normal, normal people want. Um, but they can do enormous damage to the economy and they can slow the problem-solving process down enormously by working with those kinds of ideas. And um, anyway, so um, I kind of like, I, again, I don't know if I'm going to write about this, but it's been in my head. Um, all right, I've gone long. Adam is going to be really pissed at me at how long this is and how late it is. Um, again, I want to say thank you to everybody out there uh, for sticking with me over 2022 and putting up with my crushing morosity. I want to thank uh, my colleagues at the Dispatch, um, my obviously my family. Um, here's to um, a better and more hopeful and more thriving 2023 for everybody. If in the new year you can see your way fit towards um, becoming a member of the Dispatch, it would, um, I think it would be great for you. And I know it would be great for us. And if you like this podcast and, you know, I understand that there are people who don't, but the people who do are the ones I tend to hear from. The people who don't are the ones who don't write me because they don't listen. Um, and you're not a member. Think of it as like, this is, this is the way you sustain this podcast or sustain advisory opinions or the dispatch podcast or the good faith podcast in 2023. I think we're going to get around to rolling out the Kevin Williamson joint, which would be great. And, uh, other than that, I got, I'm not going to do any of that winners and losers of 2022 or predictions for 2023. I just, I, I don't mind reading some of that stuff, but I, I'm kind of exhausted with the idea of writing it um, or composing it for the purposes of this podcast. Um, and, oh, uh, one other thing, or maybe, maybe there'll be more than one other thing. Um, thanks to everybody who uh, responded to my request or uh, the fair Jessica's request for suggestions for research for all that kind of stuff. Some of some were really helpful. All were well-intentioned and great. Um, some told her about stuff that she already knew. Um, but I can tell you, this is like, that's helpful too, because you, when you find, when someone tells you, Oh, you should go to this museum or this center or this university collection or whatever. And you've already got that on your to-do list or it's something you've already done. It, um, it's confidence building, right? It's like, okay, I'm not missing something. This is the same thing that other people told me to look for, whatever. And then there are other things, you know, that, that, um, we didn't know about or that she didn't know about. And, um, uh, and it was all very helpful. And I, if I haven't responded or if my wife hasn't responded to all of it, I apologize. I forwarded, um, pretty much everything to her. Um, and, um, but she's grateful for it. She just talks about what amazing listeners you guys, you know, that I have. Um, and um, she's not going to do her own podcast for the dispatch anytime soon, as some people suggested. But she has agreed, and I'm, I want you to mark it down. She has agreed that at minimum, this will be um, a holiday season tradition where she'll come back on, and um, um, which I think is great. And um, oh, and people asked if I'd have my daughter on. 
I don't think so. Um, I thought about having her on when she got when she first got back from Spain because then she could talk about Spain and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not ruling it out, um, but you know, she's not super interested in politics and all that kind of stuff the way you know her parents are. And um, you know, I have managed to go a long time without putting her out front in the limelight in any way. And um, I'm just sort of generally opposed to doing that. Um, you know, it's, people are like, you love your dog so much than you love your kid. And I was like, well, no, it's just that like, you can say hurtful things about my dog on Twitter and they won't care. Um, but people do and say terrible things trying to hurt me um, by saying things about her or my wife, and I, I'm not rational about it, and I don't want them to see that stuff. And so, and, you know, the few times I've dipped my toe into doing that kind of thing, um, most people have been great, but enough people have been jackasses that it just doesn't make sense. But I appreciate the request, and, like, you know, again, if, you know, maybe when she graduates from college and, you know, what was college like, you know, blah, 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 we can have that kind of conversation. She wants to do some ambitious, crazy things, in the near future. Um, and so maybe after that, but I'm not, I, I'm not turning her into a junior pundit because that's not what she wants to be. So anyway, thanks to everybody. Please become a member of the dispatch if you can. Oh, last thing I promise. Um, we are going to try to do a lot more meetups in various locales around the country in 2023. And we're very excited about doing it. Um, but one of the only ways we can make it feasible, because, you know, you're talking about flying a bunch of people out to a city, putting them up um, in hotels, that kind of thing. Um, that starts to add up pretty quickly. Uh, the only way to make it feasible for us is if we can have, you know, people who, or institutions or businesses or whatever want to sponsor venues for us to do it. Um, and, you know, we're looking at ways to sort of, if you're a member, it's free, but if you bring a friend, they can sign up and become a member and it's part of the admission, blah, 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 blah. You know, we're looking at ways to make it work, but like a key to it is, uh, is not having to sort of rent some big venue, um, but having some, having a sponsor get behind it. So if you're interested in doing something like that, I can put you in touch with, um, uh, Ryan Brown. Um, actually, why don't I just do that right now? I, I don't want to be feeling all of these things. I mean, feel free to CC me on it or reach out to me too, but uh, it's just Ryan at the dispatch.com. Um, he's our community. You know, he's been on the drive time podcast and all that. Um, he's our community guy and, um, um, and he's taking point in all of that. And it would be great to do, you know, it'd be great to go places that, um, that, normally don't get, you know, those kinds of events. I don't know how to say it without sounding like a jackass. And the last thing I want to do is sound like a jackass. Um, but um, uh, we'd love to do it. We think it'd be good for the dispatch. We think it'd be good to sort of prove, to provide value for members and it's fun. So if you're interested or if you have a lead or a suggestion, uh, do let us know. And this is a great test to see how many people listen to the very end of the podcast. So with that, Thank you, everybody, and I will talk to you next time.